0: to the Michigan Constitution podcast, where the citizens of the Mitten State seek the pleasant peninsula between their state and federal identities through a deeper understanding of how Michigan's Constitution, and its defining case law, affects their everyday lives. Your host, Tony Snyder, is a licensed Michigan attorney with more than a decade of experience in private and government practice. Through this podcast, you'll better understand the unique characteristics of Michigan's supreme law, and probably learn a few fun facts about federalism, too. And now, here's Tony welcome back to the
1: 18th installment of the mission constitution podcast we will continue our conversation about the right to bear arms as protected under article 1 section 6 of the mission constitution we've discussed already aspects such as the right of self-defense the right of a felon in possession of a firearm as well as what happens when a felony is committed with a firearm Now we're going to address a hodgepodge of other cases which have caused Article 1, Section 6 of the Michigan Constitution to be questioned in our courts. But first, our spoonful of legalese. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. The purpose of this podcast is merely to teach you what's in the Michigan Constitution. Each podcast will review a different article section, we will talk about what it means, and we will review Michigan case law which helps us to better understand the effects of those constitutional provisions. Here's what this podcast is not. It is not legal advice. It is not legal expertise. Although I am a licensed attorney in the state of Michigan, I make no warranties as to the veracity of the statements I make within this podcast. First of all, I don't practice constitutional law, I practice administrative law. Second, the laws change on a day-to-day basis, as does case law. What might be applicable the day I make a statement about the Michigan Constitution could very well be outdated the day I post the podcast. If you think you're going to become a Michigan constitutional scholar because of my podcast, you're sadly mistaken. You'd do better with a Ouija board and a magic eight ball. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. If you need Michigan legal advice, you would be well served to contact the State Bar of Michigan and ask for their lawyer referral service program for a referral to an attorney who specializes in your legal matter. First case, Eaton County Deputy Sheriff's Association versus Smith a 1971 Michigan Court of Appeals case. There's actually not a lot of fact pattern for this case, which is a little disappointing since it's made its way up to the Michigan Court of Appeals and got a published opinion out of the matter. The best I can piece together, the deputies of the Eaton County Sheriff's Department sued the county sheriff after he signed an edict prohibiting deputies from carrying guns
0: while off duty. The edict
1: was as follows.
0: From the above day on, No deputy under the rank of corporal will be allowed to wear an off-duty gun unless he is given special permission. The deputies who worked for Eaton County
1: argued that they had a Michigan constitutional right under Article 1, Section 6 to carry concealed weapons at all times. More so, the Michigan legislature has even given police officers an exemption from a law which forbids people from driving a vehicle while carrying a concealed firearm on their person without a license. The argument the deputies are making is because Article 1,
0: Section 6 reads, Every person has a right to keep and bear arms for the defense of himself and the state. Therefore, they surely would be allowed
1: to carry concealed weapons on their person during off-duty hours, and that the county sheriff surely could not limit their rights. Wrong, said the Michigan Court of Appeals. They found no merit in the county deputies' reasoning they looked to the statute which allows a sheriff to appoint one or more deputy sheriffs at his pleasure. Therefore, the court opined, this gives the sheriff of each county the power to prescribe the rules and regulations whereby employment as a deputy may be obtained and continued. In our case, the court of appeals said that the sheriff has decided that deputies under the rank of corporal may not carry weapons while off-duty. And, because the sheriff has an obligation to both the citizens of the county as well as his deputies, the sheriff can decide what he believes is best for all concerned. And, if his deputies are not carrying a weapon on their off-duty hours is what the sheriff believes is best for the people of his county and his deputies, the court is not going to substitute its judgment for that of the sheriff. The court found that the exemption of police officers from obtaining licenses to carry concealed weapons while driving in no way limits the powers inherent in the office of sheriff to promulgate rules and regulations pertaining to the employment of deputies. The court believed that if the person wishes to carry a weapon on their person when not on the clock, they're going to have to perform a different job. I'm not sure how I feel about this case. After all, the court is allowing a sheriff to essentially make his deputies of Eaton County choose between either exercising their constitutional right to bear arms or keeping their job. Forget the dangers that come with being an unarmed, off-duty police officer who runs into a disgruntled criminal and how that may play out. What the court is condoning is allowing a sheriff to force a deputy to choose between his constitutional right under the Michigan Constitution and the deputy's right to keep and maintain that job. On the other hand, I get where the court is going with this line of thinking. You could go work in a different county with a different sheriff, and maybe their off-duty regulations regarding the carrying of a weapon will be different. Similarly, perhaps you choose to leave that line of work in Eaton County so that you can wear a firearm during off-duty hours with whatever your new job may be. The point is, the court reasons, if a deputy continues to work for Eaton County as a deputy... That is a choice the deputy is making, and it is not a violation of the Michigan Constitution to have a sheriff create a regulation which limits a deputy's off-duty firearm possession. Next case, Bay County Concealed Weapons Licensing Board versus GASTA, a 1980 Court of Appeals case. For a fact pattern which was light in the previous case, we're going to get the opposite for this case, so stick with me. On January 7th, 1976, at a hearing, Mr. James George Gesta was granted a permit to carry a concealed weapon, limited to use in conjunction with his employment with Jamie's Dairies. Unfortunately, the fact pattern does not go into great detail over what exactly Jamie's Dairies is, but it seems to be a convenience store. So perhaps the license was for the purpose of working the overnight hours where robberies were most likely to occur. Regardless, just 18 months later, his permit was revoked. So what happened? Well, there are two versions of what happened. Here's the defendant's side of the story. Defendant claims that when he returned home from work, he discovered his son was being threatened by two older youths who had chased the son both on foot and in a car. Accordingly, defendant pulled the gun and held the assailants at bay until the police could arrive. A conflicting version was presented that the defendant's son was one of a group of youngsters throwing fruit at a passing vehicle occupied by the two older teens who subsequently chased the son. It is further alleged that our defendant here actually removed the keys from the ignition of the teenager's car and, without contacting the authorities, held the teenagers at gunpoint. Defendant Gasta is ultimately convicted for intentionally pointing a firearm at another person and this triggers a complaint to the Bay County Licensing Board. A hearing was held by the licensing board and they voted to revoke Mr. Gasta's concealed weapon license. The Michigan Court of Appeals agrees to hear the case after a circuit court judge reverses the licensing board's revocation. The Michigan Court of Appeals, however, ultimately sides with the Bay County licensing board for two reasons. First, They state the existence of a concealed weapons licensing board reflects the state's legitimate interest in limiting public access to weapons suitable for criminal purposes. Second, they confirm the precedence that the constitutionality guaranteed right to bear arms is subject to a reasonable exercise of the legislative's police power. The way the Michigan legislature has these three-member licensing boards set up is that it's the county's prosecuting attorney, plus the county sheriff, plus a commissioner of the Michigan State Police who are charged with the exclusive authority to issue a license to carry concealed weapons. The three-member licensing board also has the statutory authority to revoke a concealed weapon permit. The Michigan Court of Appeals does a nice job explaining what they believe is the rationale for the legislature creating this three-member panel and why these three people are the best folks to determine when a license should be granted or revoked. The court said that by the legislature creating a board composed of law enforcement officials and by giving this board the exclusive authority to issue, deny, and revoke permits for concealed weapons the legislature has ensured that an individual's perceived need to carry a concealed weapon will be evaluated in light of the experience and knowledge possessed by these local officials. The potential danger which a concealed weapon poses to the unsuspecting public justifies that licensing procedures be entrusted to a board comprised of law enforcement officials. Again, The theory as I see it from the Court of Appeals is that the people who are going to know best whether a person should be issued a concealed carry permit is going to be the person who encounters the citizens, sometimes not at their best, which would be the county sheriff. You have the individual who prosecutes people, the county prosecutor, and you have someone from the Michigan State Police who sees everything that's going on in the state. These are the three people the Michigan legislature believes to be the best at making this type of decision. Therefore, the court ruled when viewing the inherent potential dangers which accompanies the issuance of a permit to carry a concealed weapon, the licensing board as composed reflects the legislature's intent that power to issue and revoke such license is properly placed with those professionals most able to assess community needs and problems in their area. One last Tony's thought, too. Remember, we're only talking about a concealed carry permit. Nothing in this case prevents an individual from owning a gun or even open carrying that gun. The right to bear arms, at least in this case, has not been infringed by revoking your concealed carry permit. I hope that your takeaway from this case is that a concealed carry permit is not a constitutionally protected right. The permit is a privilege. The firearm itself, however, is still protected by Michigan's Article 1, Section 6 provision of the Constitution. Next case. Camp versus Camp. A 1999 Michigan Court of Appeals case. And I gotta concede, this next case is interesting, if not a little cringeworthy. I'll spare you the uncomfortable details, but I'll explain it this way. A wife successfully obtains a personal protection order, or AKA a PPO, by the court against her husband. Due to many physical and verbal assaults by the husband against the wife, The court grants the PPO request, which required, in addition to the, you know, common things like no contact orders, no harassing, threatening phone calls, visits, writings, it also prohibited Mr. Camp from purchasing or possessing firearms. Now, the reason I say this is an interesting case is because the wife was able to successfully obtain this PPO against her husband through an ex parte order. Sidebar an ex parte order is Latin for done with respect to or in the interests of one side only, which means that the wife was not required to notify the husband she was going to request the personal protection order and that the judge could make a decision on the merits of the PPO request without hearing the husband's side of the story. Now, I'm not going to get into the weeds on this, but there are procedural protections in place to allow the husband to ultimately have his day in court. But the value in allowing an ex parte PPO to be issued without the husband knowing is the notion that if he knew about what the wife was going to try and do, he might try to threaten harm or actually cause harm to the wife to prevent her from seeking this PPO. So the husband subsequently learns his wife successfully obtained a PPO against him, and one of these restrictions against him is his ability to own a firearm. He goes to court and argues prohibition of gun ownership violates his Article 1, Section 6, right to bear arms under the Michigan Constitution. Now, this is where he, and more likely his attorney, made a fatal flaw in the argument. He does not argue the right to bear arms is for the protection of himself, nor does he argue there's no reason why he couldn't both own a gun and stay away from his wife. He does not argue that the requirements to stay away from his wife conflicts with the right to own a gun for his own self-defense. Instead, he argues it is unconstitutional because this prohibits him from owning firearms for the possibility of hunting or other sporting events. Bull honky, said the Michigan Court of Appeals. They start their ruling out by saying, and I quote here, the Michigan Constitution does not protect the right to bear arms in the context of sport or recreation, unquote. But what about my belief he argued the wrong side, that instead he should have argued he's got an Article 1, Section 6 right to bear arm for self-protection? Well, the Michigan Court of Appeals touches upon that. They stated in a footnote, a footnote That time and time again, our Michigan courts have held the constitutional right to bear arms may yield itself to a legislative enactment that represents a reasonable regulation by the state in the exercise of its police power to protect the health, welfare, and safety of Michigan citizens. This personal protection order statute is clearly addressed to protect the health, safety, and welfare of victims of domestic violence. The rationale of the Michigan Court of Appeals is to say, while you do have a right to bear arms, there are instances where the Michigan Legislature might limit your right to exercise your Article One, Section Six rights because you are behaving in a way that necessitates a PPO to be issued against you. More so, the Personal Protection Order statute does require a person seeking a PPO against another person to notify the court that that other person must carry a firearm as part of the job. So let's say the PPO might be placed against a spouse who is a police officer, or a security guard at a bank, or perhaps owns a jewelry store. Then the person seeking the PPO is required to let the court know their intended PPO recipient does need a gun for the purposes of their job. And at that point then, the court is allowed to make a judgment regarding whether a PPO would prohibit the person from possessing a firearm, and if that would affect the person's constitutional right to defend themselves. So, there is a protection in that regard, but the Michigan Court of Appeals makes clear, wanting a firearm for hunting purposes is not protected under Article 1, Section 6 of the Michigan Constitution. Oh, hey, uh, by the way, you know what cases they rely on in making this ruling? And if this argument sounds familiar to you, it should they cite both the Smelter case and the Swint case we've discussed already throughout these podcasts. Michigan Attorney General Opinion, 2010. Our last case on Article 1, Section 6 deals with hunting and firearms. A state senator from the Upper Peninsula ask the Michigan Attorney General about a legal provision found within the Wildlife Conservation Act. The legal provision reads as follows.
0: A person shall not do any of the following. During the five days immediately preceding November 15, transport or possess in an area frequented by deer a rifle or shotgun with buckshot, slug load, ball load, or cut shell. A person may transport a rifle or shotgun to or from a hunting camp if the rifle or shotgun is unloaded and securely encased or carried in the trunk of a vehicle. This section shall not prohibit a resident who holds a fur harvester's license from carrying a rimfire firearm 22 caliber or smaller while hunting or checking a trap line during the open season for hunting or trapping fur-bearing animals.
1: The history on this specific legal provision has been in force since 1942 and has been intended to help prevent the poaching of deer during the five days preceding opening day. This intent is demonstrated by the fact that the types of ammunition and firearms subject to the five day period are those typically used when hunting deer. Furthermore, embedded within the protection against poaching immediately before the season opens are the concepts of fair play and a level playing field for hunters. The restriction helps ensure that all hunters enter the season with an equal opportunity for the taking of game. Well, the question before the Michigan Attorney General was this. Does this provision of the Wildlife Conservation Act violate an individual's right to bear arms as established by Article 1, Section 6? By now, I bet you know the answer is no. No this restriction does not violate a person's right to bear arms. And why do you know this? Because you are familiar with the legal cases of People v. Brown and People v. Swind. The Michigan Attorney General first begins his analysis with our 1931 case of People v. Brown. He points out that the right to bear arms has its origin in the fear of the American colonists of a standing army and its use to oppress the people, along with the desire to maintain a militia composed of all able-bodied men. Furthermore, the protections of the Constitution is not limited to militiamen nor military purposes, but extends to every person to bear arms for the defense of himself as well as the state. But this allocation is subject to the valid exercise of the police power of the state to regulate the carrying of firearms the Michigan Attorney General went on to cite the Swint case by pointing out that even the Michigan Court of Appeals recognized the Michigan legislature's police power when it upheld as constitutional the restriction of felons from possessing firearms. The Attorney General said that when applying both the Brown and the Swint cases, there is no Article 1, Section 6 constitutional violation in our case at hand. The restriction within the act imposes a short duration that only applies to a limited number of specifically described firearms which are used, typically, to hunt deer. Therefore, the Michigan legislature provided a very narrow restriction for a very narrow period of time. More so, the Attorney General pointed out nothing in the act restricts a person from possessing a handgun for self-defense. Article 1, Section 6 is designed to provide for self-defense and the defense of the state. Unless your Uncle Jimbo from South Park screaming, they're coming to attack us and then blowing the deer to smithereens, you're going to be allowed to protect yourself from possible evildoers. Lastly, The Michigan Attorney General states that there is a legitimate police power justifying this restriction and that that restriction is the prevention of poaching deer while ensuring a level playing field for all hunters awaiting opening day. And that's going to do it for episode number 18 of the Michigan Constitution Podcast. Please reach out
0: to me. I'm at Tony Snyder on Twitter. The Michigan Constitution Podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not offer legal advice or create an attorney-client relationship. This podcast is hosted by Tony Snyder. For more information, visit TonySnyder.com, send an email to podcast at TonySnyder.com, or follow Tony on Twitter at Tony Snyder. Catch new episodes on the 1st and 15th of each month. Thanks for listening.